I welcome you tonight to the 222nd regular meeting of the Chicago Civil War Roundtable. I would uh, like to call upon an old pro who is the only one that I really think can do justice to introducing the guest speaker today. So, Ralph, if you would kindly step forward uh, and do the honor, I would appreciate it. This is sort of a retaliatory affair. I introduce Pi, and he gets even with me by introducing me in New Orleans when I'll speak there. And it's my turn again. Several years since I was first invited to come to New Orleans and speak to their round table, and I was advised that Pi Dufour would meet me. And indeed he did. I have never been greeted so enthusiastically, so thoroughly, and enjoyed an opportunity to visit the community as much as I did under his guidance. The hospitality he bestowed on me and he has on others who have spoken to the community is embarrassing. You worry about where he finds the time to do the many things he does for the distinguished newspaper he occasionally, I hear, works for comes from. But as a columnist, as a critic in literature and music and the drama and other things, he does a superb job and great respect in his community. I think I've been there at least three times when Pi has been my host. On one occasion, I didn't come down there as a speaker. I came down there as a representative of Paul Angle and the Chicago Historical Society to try to sell a document the Chicago Historical Society thought did not properly belong in their institution and asked me to confidentially carry out a mission and see if I could sell this document. I thought it belonged in Louisiana, and I went down with instructions from Paul Angle to sell it for no less than $5,000, though his final words were, sell it. I met Pi, and we discussed some strategy, and after two delightful days, made a sale in which the purchaser was so happy he even threw a luncheon for me at Galatoire's. Came back to Chicago, called Paul Angle and said, Paul, I'm sorry to report I could not sell it for $5,000. Would you have lunch with me? He met me at lunch and said, what did you get, 3500 I said, no. I regret to advise that the best I could do was 25000 It's a great moment. Ty and I were just discussing the casual, easiest part of the whole thing was getting the check from the purchaser, who wouldn't have even turned a hair had we said 5,000, and wouldn't even been impressed. Naturally, I have great affection for this man. <laughs> this one, the man with the 25. <laughs> but Pi Dufour demonstrates that wonderful quality that has made this an organization that's so successful and so much fun, and has been responsible for the growth of the Civil War Roundtable movement and for the interest in the Civil War. He has great enthusiasm, and he's not at all ashamed to demonstrate it. It's lamentable in this world of ours that to some badly informed, misguided people, enthusiasm is regarded as sort of a weakness. The right people don't do it. You're supposed to affect a, some type of steadied boredom, even though a thing excites you very much. 
God damn it, there's nothing wrong with enthusiasm. I think enthusiasm is one of the things perhaps that makes the city of Chicago a little better. We're not ashamed to admit we're proud of it. Even though there are some things in it we deplore. And Pi has this, Lloyd Miller has it, you can see it. Pi writes a daily column, Pi du Fours a la mode, for the New Orleans State's item. He doubles as a music critic. It's a damn good column. It's well read, not only in his own community, but all over the country. He's the author of several books in the Civil War. One, Gentle Tiger, The Life of Robert Doe Wheat, a soldier of fortune and a leader of the notorious Louisiana Tigers. He did a superb book on New Orleans in the Civil War called The Night the War Ended, and currently is the author of Nine Men in Gray, the biography is of nine Confederate heroes. And tonight he's going to speak on the only non-military man in this really fine book of his. Tonight his subject will be Henry Holt's rebel propagandist. I could say something about Henry Holt's, but why should I? Pyle do it so much better. Ladies and gentlemen. Ladies, this is Peggy Lebold who has mentioned tonight. Thank you very much, Ralph, for that usual cordiality. <clears throat> you know, at one of the joint uh, reunions of the Confederate and Northern Yankee veterans, uh, the old rebels in blue coats were sitting around the campfire one night, and one old Federal got up and said, you know, I can see it just like it was now. He said, I was a sentry up there at Appomattox, and I was walking up and down with my gun. I can see it just as if it were now, I'm telling you. And there was Robert E. Lee sitting on a box of crackers when he signed the surrender. Old rebel got up and he stomped his wooden leg, said, sir, that's a lie. If Robert E. Lee had a box of crackers, the war lasted four more years. <laughs> well, gentlemen, I think it is fortunate for those of us in the audience who are authors that the Civil War centennial will not last four more years. Old Otto with his 12 books, and Bud with his first real book, although several other fine things. Sam Eamon, my friend Grady McWinnie with a book that is going to be a sensation when it is born. Period of gestation is getting kind of long, though, isn't it, Grady? <laughs> and uh, this will be a book about that great enig enig enigmatic Confederate, Braxton Bragg, the man who never knew when he had a battle won. But I'm not going to steal his thunder. But it's going to be a great book. In fact, there are 36,000 books that have been written since Appomattox. And Ralph Newman probably sold every damn one of them. <laughs> And the thing about writing books about Civil War, it's interesting to me, is that in these 36,000 books, not one of them has been dedicated to the man I'm going to tell you a little something about tonight, provided you haven't already read it in the book. As one of the gentlemen said, he bought the book two weeks ago, so it's to read about Henry Hotz. And I'm calling him Hotz because the, uh, I don't think, I think Hotz is correct, but there is a collateral branch of the family, which is spelled H-O-T-Z, and I assume that would be uh, pronounced Hots, but anyhow, I'll call him Hots for convenience. Uh, when you put your head on the block in writing books, you get all kinds of, uh, well, let me state, re-state that by saying that Sibelius, the great 
musician, Finland, Finnish musician, once said, nobody ever erected a monument to a music critic. And sometimes some of us authors don't feel that there ought to be uh, monuments erected to critics. In my book on the night the war was lost, I had one person who I know didn't get any further than the blurb write that this is one of the best novels to come out of the Civil War. <laughs> and I would like to read you before I start my speech to show you how an author can sometimes realize in writing one book, he has really written two books. And I'm going to quote you first, and I ask you to bear with what may be pardonable pride. Uh, I'm going to read you first from the uh, Richmond News Leader, and then I will follow up with a companion piece from the uh, Savannah Morning News, both of which arrived in the same mail to me the other day, and I thought the juxtaposition of these two reviews was just too good not to bring along and pass on to people, particularly those of you who may write reviews. The man in the Richmond News Leader is very generous. He says it just stops a person how after all these years, and after all that has been written on the Confederacy, an author can come up with yet another book, both interesting and new. Charles L. Dufour has done it in his Nine Men in Gray. It grabs a person on, now this is the part to listen to, it grabs a person on page one and doesn't turn him loose until the author has spun his final story. Now we change to the next scene. Civil War historians may find Nine Men in Gray an interesting book. The rest of us, however, may find it to be exceedingly dull. Dufour does finish his book, but it takes great perseverance on the part of the reader to do so. Both in the same mail. And part yours will be coming too. <laughs> well, Mr. Hotz, who is he? This you'll find inscribed in the Rebel War Clique, J.B. Jones's journal, for Nova in November of 1863. Hotz was unknown in Richmond to the man who knew about everything else that was going on in Richmond. Unknown in 1863, apparently, yet he had been over in England for two years doing a tremendous propaganda job for the Confederacy. It's not surprising if he was unknown in his own backyard that he'd be unknown virtually today. Outside of a few of the Civil War writers, historians of the war, that is, a handful of graduate students, and very, very few of the buffs, Henry Hotz is a forgotten man. The Distinguished Dictionary of American Biography doesn't have a word about Hotz. Colonel Mark, Mark Boatner's uh, Civil War Dictionary, neither a word about Hotz or of the Index, the propaganda paper which he published for four years, almost four years, three and a half years in England. It wasn't until the diplomatic papers of the Confederacy appeared in the late, volumes, uh, late volume of the uh, Naval Official Records in 1922 that Henry Hotz became pretty well known, you may say, to those who dug for him in among the records. Now, who was this chap? Well, if he'd have lived today, if he'd have lived a hundred years later than he did, he might be one of the bright young men in flannel suits on Madison Avenue, inducing you to drink this kind of whiskey because it goes through charcoal. But from what I've heard today, you don't need any bright young men from Madison Avenue to induce uh, whiskey drinking in this organization. <coughs> He might have been a United States diplomat and a very distinguished one. He might have been one of our great influential editorial voices in some of the great papers of the day. Certainly he could have and held down the job with credit, the job of the director of the Voice of America. And because he thought this way in 1861 and earlier, 
he might have stood by the side of Governor Wallace of Alabama at Tuscaloosa just this past week. Who was Hawks? Well, Frank Owsley, in his very fine King Cotton diplomacy, says he was a very able man, as able as any agent who went abroad during the Civil War. He showed more insight into public opinion and tendencies than either James M. Mason or John Slidell, and his fastidiousness, his deftness, and his lightness of touch in a delicate situation was remarkable. His resourcefulness had a masterly finesse that would have done honor to Cavour or Bismarck. Finally, he was intellectually honest and unafraid to face the facts. Another historian who wrote about the Confederate cabinet and its interlocking affairs, uh, Brayton J. Hendrick, in his Statesman of the Lost Cause, says of Hotz, he possessed a suavity, a subtlety, and silence in method that would have distinguished an experienced diplomat. As far back as 1862, Hotz introduced into publicity procedures those psychological methods upon which so many modern exemplars pride themselves. No press agent so noiselessly as Hotz ever plied his trade. In comparison with his suppleness and comprehension, James Murray Mason appears a slow-witted blunderer, and even John Slidell looks like an unscrupulous moth For three years, Henry Hotz edited, three years plus, edited the index from May 1862 to May 1865. This was ostensibly an English weekly magazine, uh, newspaper. It was subsidized by the Confederate States of America. Hawks always stayed in the background, always in the background, yet with a, a skill which was tremendous, a judgment which was almost always sound, and with a brilliant pen, he pushed the Confederate cause in England and did it magnificently. To point out how little he is known, even so fine a scholar as Douglas Southall Freeman does not seem to have known Hawks' name. He mentions the index in his, uh, the, uh, South to, South to Posterity, which he discusses all the literature of the Confederacy. And in the, in the South to, to, to Posterity, he says about the index, this remarkable publication into which every student of Confederate history should dip is a reminder that propaganda is not a new art. Admiral Printed, he says, the index is a unique Confederate publication and must have been one of the most effective of all organs of propaganda before the period of the First, pardon me, First World War. Yet he doesn't call Hotz by name. What he says, that the South lent some of its best literary talent to the index. And he mentions prominently, in fact, the only one he mentions is the Virginia poet and editor of the uh, Southern Literary Messenger, uh, John R. Thompson. But from John R. Thompson's own uh, diary, which is in the University of Virginia uh, archives, the Alderman Library archives in the University of Virginia, you find that uh, he didn't get over there to England and join the index until August of 1864, just a year before it folded. Now let's look at Hotz for a minute and see what he did as an, as an, in his early pre-Civil War days. He was born in Zurich, Switzerland in 1834. He was naturalized in Mobile, Alabama in 1855 when he was 21 years of age. But we don't know a thing about when he came to Mobile, or when he even came to this country, or, or his parentage, in, in a sense, or if I would say they're unknown, they at least have not been identified. They do not appear in the, any of the census reports of the period, and his obituary in the Mobile Register of May 11, 1887, 
does not so much as mention his family. We do know that he had a very early literary gift. He exemplified a gift for writing very early. And he also followed the traditional Southern line as regards the slavery question. He translated and adapted and uh, wrote a lengthy introduction to uh, Count Arthur de Gobineau's L'Angalité de Ras, which is the inequality of races, of course, which he translated under the title, The Moral and Intellectual Diversity of Races. And this is why I believe he would have, had he stayed in Mobile, had he lived this hundred years, or had he stayed in his, in his adopted state of Alabama, I believe that he perhaps would have stood hand in hand with Governor Wallace. This young man moved in the best social and intellectual circles in Mobile, which of course in the pre-war days was quite fine, as you know. Uh, he made friends with people in high place. And it's not surprising that when uh, the Alabamian uh, E.Y. Fair became the American minister to Belgium in 1858, that he asked Henry Hawks to go as secretary of legation. Unfortunately, the uh, United States did not set aside, the Senate, or the, or the Congress, did not set aside any money for such a post. And so in 1859, Hawks was back in Mobile. He became associate editor of the Mobile Register, and he became a member of the elite uh, Mobile Cadets, one of the many military units which the South uh, had uh, during those days. Uh, when the war broke out, he was mustered into service with the Mobile Cadets. He only remained in service for three months, and in the index, his early issues, he relates anonymously uh, his war experiences or his uh, pre-war experiences from the time uh, he went in until he was mustered out uh, in a piece which he entitled Three Months uh, in the Confederate Army. In August, 18, August 31st, 1861, he happened to be back in Mobile on a furlough, and uh, along the lines he ran into Leroy Pope Walker, the Alabamian who was then Secretary of War for the Confederacy for a brief period. And he immediately sent the young man abroad to check up on, to speed up on the purchase of war materials uh, which ha the Confederacy had been trying to get. Hot Streets, London on October the 5th, 1861. He delivered his messages and made his studies of the situation to William L. Yancey and to Pierre A. Ross and to Dudley Mann, the three commissioners abroad. He remained only two weeks. And in November the 6th, he was back in Richmond with his report. He saw Secretary of War, now Benjamin, and uh, Benjamin was very much impressed by this young man, by his poise, by his energy, by his confidence, and he detected what everyone who knew Hotz detected, that he had uh, readily uh, discernible qualities, both of mind and manner, which would make him an invaluable man, not toting a rifle as a Confederate GI, but in some other service uh, to the Confederate cause. Surely, this bright young man was not just a mere rifleman. Now, when Hawks was in England, he was quick to grasp one thing. He saw that the federal government had a monopoly on all the news that was being printed in England. All the war news, all the American news, was thoroughly monopolized and written from, by, and of the Northern point of view. The Southern story simply wasn't getting through. 
Why not, Hot said to himself, why not a Confederate agent in London? Someone there through whom Confederate news can be funneled to the British press. And he said, why not myself? And so with that idea in mind, he talked to the Secretary of State Hunter of the Confederacy, and Hunter thought this is a swell idea. Meantime, uh, Hunter had spoken to Benjamin, who already was impressed with Hotz's ability, and he thought it was a swell idea. They went to see Jefferson Davis, and uh, Jefferson Davis quickly agreed. So on November the 14th, 1861, Henry Hotz received a commission as commercial agent for the Confederacy in England. Now this commercial agency was just a front for Hotz's true purpose in London. In his instructions to the young propagandist-to-be, Secretary of Hunter made it very clear that his mission was to keep the State Department advised of the tone of the English press <laughs> regarding the war and to transmit with appropriate comments extracts from the printed journals as you may deem to have an important bearing upon the question. Hotz was to be diligent and earnest in persuading British public opinion, quote, of the ability of the Confederate States to maintain their independence. He was to have published any information which would show the South's, quote, ample resources and vast military strength and tend to raise the Confederate States, quote, character and government in general estimation. He wrote long, lengthy instructions to this chap. Hunter also instructed him to zealously strive to dispel foreign fears, quote, as to the reconstruction of the Union, and to emphasize, quote, the universal sentiment of the Southern people to prosecute the war until their independence shall no longer be assailed. The Confederate propagandist was to keep constantly before the public the tyranny of the Lincoln government, its utter disregard of personal rights, and its notorious violations of the law. These hots was to contrast with the peace and order that prevailed everywhere in the Confederacy where the laws had been instantly and impartially administered. And finally, the Secretary of State told Hotz to dangle free trade before the British people, assuring them of the almost universal opinion in the Confederate States that as few restrictions as possible should be imposed upon that trade and those only for revenue purposes. Now, this was quite an assignment for a young man of 27 years of age, but Hunter expressed in his uh, orders, he expressed great confidence in what he called his Hotz's address and dispatch. But you wouldn't know it from the meager funds he allowed him to go through with this elaborate program of propaganda because he was going to get the princely salary of $1,500 a year and a contingency expense account of $750. As Owsley says, uh, in the light of Hotz's accomplishment, this stipend and expense money seem like a jest. Well, Hotz reached London on January the 29th, 1862. His traveling companions were two men who had been very much in the news. One of them was James M. Mason and the other was John Slidell. The Trent Affair had blown over. The Federals had returned Mason and Slidell uh, to the Caribbean island from which they sailed, and all of them sailed for England on the same vessel. Now you must know at this time the Confederacy was married to what was known as King Cotton Diplomacy, and the honeymoon was still on. Now the South did not, I don't think, invent the idea that cotton is king, although they soon grasped it. Or put it this way, it may have been simultaneously invented in several places. But the first 
expression of that idea which had some real value appears in the London Economist in 1853 which said, let any social or physical convulsion visit the United States and England would feel the shock. The lives of nearly two million of our country, that's Englishmen, two million of our country are dependent upon the cotton crops of America. Their destiny may be said without any kind of hyperbola to hang upon a thread. Well, this idea voiced in the London press in 1853 was picked up and embroidered upon by Southern philosophers, Southern uh, politicians, Southern writers and editors. Uh, we only have to read uh, William H. Russell of the New London Times, uh, his accounts of his visits to the South. For example, he tells us that once in a Charleston club, he was told, we know John Bull, one of these Southerners said, he will make a great fuss about non-intervention at first, but when he begins to want cotton, he will come down off his perch. Southern people universally, said uh, uh, Russell, believe in the irresistible power of cotton. And to a man, he said, they boasted that Great Britain uh, would uh, have to come to the South because the South was the masters of the destiny of the world, and cotton is king, not alone king, but czar. And this was the political thinking in the Confederacy, and we know Jefferson Davis thought that way. Mrs. Davis, in her memoirs, says that uh, the president and his advisor, she says, looked to the stringency of the English cotton market and the suspension of the manufacturers to send up a ground swill, swell from the English operatives that would compel recognition of the Confederacy. So this is the philosophy that permeated the whole Southern thinking when uh, Henry Hotz arrived in England. Now, the uh, failure of the uh, Rost Man uh, Yancey mission, of course, is why they, they had failed up to this point in swinging the King Cotton diplomacy in favor of the South, and that is why they were replaced by, uh, by uh, Mason and Slidell. Three days after Hartz arrived in London, he dashed off a quick report, his first impressions, to send to Secretary Hunter because uh, William Lowndes Yancey was hurrying home at the first chance, and he wrote this dispatch so that Yancey could take it back home with him. And here's what he did. He admitted that it would be premature, he said, to venture upon an expression opinion on the tone of public sentiment. But the impression left on my mind is favorable without warranting any sanguine hopes. The young propagandist told Secretary Hunter that he could find no complaint in the London press with an ad attitude towards the Confederacy. But he says there is an indefatigable and unscrupulous agency ever ready to seize the slightest opportunity for damaging us in public estimation. And this malevolent Yankee force, he discovered, upset he discovered, was the politician and publicist Thurlow Weed, uh, who, as he said, was employing methods abroad which were most repulsive to English tastes and English habits. And he concluded that Weed injures most the cause he wishes to serve. And from Thurlow Weed's example, Hotz got a warning and he wrote, wrote this, I cannot be too cautious and circumspect. He would have little to transmit, he said, of my composition for three or four weeks. But he promised Hunter he would survey the field, quote, for an intelligent estimate 
of the relative importance of conflicting interests and views. And this boy is 27 years old, he's tremendously mature. For three weeks, Hawks did nothing. Nothing, that is, except cultivate the English press. He met writers, he met English editors, he met political leaders, and he met and was introduced in the best circles by the so-called Southern Lobby. And he writes back as a result of this, is that I have been fortunate enough to gain almost immediate access to a higher social sphere than I hope to attain in so short a period. Uh, this, he said, would give him wider range of influence and immeasurably greater facilities for usefulness. And he extended his acquaintances slowly, he said, but in the best possible direction. And daily he was applied for to provide facts and arguments to be used in Al, the Confederate's favor. On February 22, 1862, Hots broke into print in England for the first time. The Morning Post, an organ of Lord Palmerston, the Prime Minister, uh, printed his article as its leading editorial. He enclosed a clipping from the paper in a letter in which he wrote Hunter and urged Hunter to make due allowance for the necessity under which I felt myself of studiously maintaining an English point of view and not to advance too far beyond recognized public opinion. Hot said that his topic had been the inauguration of the permanent Confederate government, which he said he couldn't allow to pass unnoticed in the London press, but it would have if he hadn't written this article. And he opened up with a tribute to George Washington, it being Washington's birthday, and he went on to say that Washington continues to be honored by both fragments of the severed nation. But the North, he said, has forgotten the lessons of his example and the spirit of his teachings. Uh, to Hotz's surprise and delight, the editorial was a sensation in the London clubs and coffee houses. And he reported to, Hutt, uh, to Hunter that this deep impression that his leading article had made resulted from the belief that it was unmistakably an emanation from Lord Palmerston himself. Hotz professed to have gotten a tremendous lift out of that, and there's no reason why he shouldn't have, because after all, if his first contribution could be hailed as having come from the Prime Minister of London's own paper and the Prime Minister, that was a pretty good start. <coughs> it was soon obvious to Hotz that his pittance, which the Confederate government allowed him to live and operate on, would not enable him to do the job. So he asked Hunter for more funds. He said, I can't hold conversations on confidential topics in the common drawing room of a boarding house, nor can I receive a peer of England in a third-story bedchamber. Conceding that such visitors would not necessarily be numerous, he did mention that Lord Camel was a frequent caller. Very early, Hotz revealed that he did not indulge in self-hypnosis, that he was not afraid to face a fact. During his early days in London, he wrote uh, to Hunter, he felt that he had correctly sensed the pulse of British public opinion as being pro-Southern. But after a month's stay, it occurred to him that the only opinions he was getting were those of the Southern lobby. And he wrote that very same thing, same line to Hunter on February the 18th, 1862. It is true that he would have many friends and well-wishers here but the intercourse of a Southerner being mostly with that class, he is liable to mistake the exception for the rule. I plead guilty to having myself not been wholly exempt from that error on my return from my former brief visit to London. 
The thoughtful observation of a month convinces me that most of us have been too rapid. <coughs> most of us have been too rapid in our conclusions and too sanguine in our expectations as regards the policy of Europe and especially England. He analyzed British public opinion as not hostile, but cold and indifferent. The English people, Hart said, would prefer to see the permanent disruption of an overgrown arch-rival power. But, he said, they would prefer this, but not sufficiently to come to our aid. With penetration and astuteness, uh, which uh, certainly would have reflected commendably on a veteran diplomat, Hart skillfully diagnosed the British position. First of all, he said, the dread of war has become the national bugbear. And repugnance to slavery, or I see euphemistically called it our institution, had by now become a part, he said, of the national conscience and therefore an honest article of that of the national creed. What upset Hotz was that he had made a mistake in estimating the situation in this respect. He said that he had expected that the parties would split on the American question. And he had confidently expected that this would take place. But there was no chance he saw of an alignment by either of the two contending parties on or with the South. For either party to take a side, he said, would ensure its crushing defeat. The opposition leader, Lord Darby, accordingly carefully avoids, quote, advancing one inch beyond the position which Lord Palmerston is supposed to hold. And contrary to his other calculations, the manufacturing interests afford little, if any, reliable support. Hotz didn't find much hostility to the Confederacy, but he found this indifference and this, you may say, an agreement, a, a nonpartisan approach to the American question. But he did find two men of importance in Parliament who were declared foes of the South. They were the Foreign Secretary, Lord Russell, who had uh, lately made himself, said Hotz, an apologist for the federal government in the House of Lords. And the other was John Bright, who, said Hotz to Hunter, represents or leads no party other than himself. But Hotz then sounded the, you may say, the formula which he was going to operate. Conscious I am that my pen can be useful to our cause and country only when it is controlled by an imperturbably, in, imperturbably calm temper. But with the skill of a poker player, Hotz played his cards with admirable restraint. Although more and more columns of the London papers were open to his pen, he determined to use, quote, the privilege moderately, neglecting no opportunity, nor seeking to create artificial ones, the soft approach, the soft sell. He was a master. Hart's first test as a propagandist came with the news of the fall of Forts Henry and Donaldson when this information reached uh, London early in March of 1862. He hastened to underrate the importance of the border states in conversations with his British friends. Here's what he said he told them. Our constitution was framed and our government organized for the states comprised in the cotton regions uh, proper. The territory which now forms the theater of war was acquired by us after the war was declared. Even should the North succeed 
in overrunning the great states of Virginia, North Carolina, Missouri, Kentucky, and Tennessee, the Southern Confederacy would be precisely what Mr. Lincoln found it on the day of his inauguration. <coughs> Hutz's brief friends seemed to have found no flaw in this argument, for several editors took the idea and developed in their own paper. And the London Times used his exact words. Meantime, Hotz begged Richmond to send him Southern newspapers. He said, if I had Southern intelligence, though ever so sparing and irregularly, I would wield up real power in journalism here, which even my unremitting labor and hitherto singularly good fortune will not give me. In the middle of March of 1862, uh, Hotz arranged with Lord Palmerston's paper, The Post, to run a series of letters on recognition for the South. The day after his first letter was published, the London Times ran a letter in the same vein. Confederate friends in Parliament had assured Hotz that these letters could pave the way for a concerted effort to be made by them after Easter. Earlier, if an important Confederate victory occurred, Hotz was delighted. I am for the first time almost sanguine in my hopes of speedy recognition, he wrote to Hunter. On April the 25th, Hotz wrote the State Department, recognition has now become only a question of the opportune moment. And on that particular day, April 25th, Flag Officer David G. Farragut appeared before New Orleans, the fall of which dealt a terrific blow to the Confederate hopes of British or European intervention. Other additional newspapers put themselves at Hotz's disposal. Lord Derby's Herald and the Standard, Bernard had been maturing in his mind for many weeks, and he made it known to the Richmond authorities. I have now, after a mature deliberation, concluded to establish a newspaper wholly devoted to our interests and which will be exclusively under my control, though my connection with it is known only to a few initiated. The first issue of this Confederate propaganda organ, the Index, came from the press on May the 1st, 1862. It was subtitled, A Weekly Journal of Politics, Literature, and News. It contained 16 pages and sold for sixpence. Now, what did the name index indicate or signify? Hotz explained it in his very first issue. Our name. If the index should be fortunate enough to point the way to a more speedy settlement of the unfortunate American war, or if it should serve to guide to a better understanding of the real character of a greatly calumniated people, we might well congratulate ourselves on the choice of our title. Having explained its name, he then on to explain that the index's purpose was threefold. First, he says, to put the Southern people back in contact with their kinsmen of England, from whom the blockade had separated them. Second, to bring English, to bring England news, which due, quote, to another rigid blockade, is censored in the North. And finally, when we state that the leading object of this journal will be to advocate the cause of the Southern Union, let it not be assumed that it will be done in the spirit of heated partisans. We believe it to be the cause of justice and truth, and hold that it cannot be saved by suppressing truth or distorting it. Our columns will be open to any writer of ability on the other side. The defects and shortcomings of the southern states which will make no attempt to conceal. On the contrary, we propose to call an error an error 
and a defective defect, taking as guide the last message of the Southern President to its Congress in which facts grievously depressing are stated in simple English with that manly candor which is above the fear of shrinking from the truth. In his third issue on May 15, 1862, Hotz editorially minimized the fall of New Orleans. Well, he said that the loss of the great city and its moral effects uh, was a severe blow to the Confederate cause. But in practical aspects, one should, quote, correctly distinguish between the great commercial importance of New Orleans and its comparative insignificance attending the present war. He ventured to agree with those who claimed the South gained by the loss of New Orleans because the fall released important troops to fight important battles. The independence of the South does not depend on its seaports, he says. New Orleans might safely and wisely be left to no other defense than the climate and the yellow fever. Deadly and sure weapons than cannonballs or banners. As the weeks went by, Hotz was delighted by the way the index had given him a chance, as he called it, of multiplying himself. In discharging his duties as a Confederate propagandist, he was doing it over and over again in reaching opinion-farming people. Uh, but he did it in a unique way. He said leading writers, or leader writers, those who write the lead articles in papers, for many of the London papers had come to him for information about the South and the Confederacy, and its armies, and its resources. And since a writer usually submitted material to several papers, Hart said, the information got multiplied over and over to these various papers. And he elaborated on this uh, deal to Secretary Benjamin in September of 1862. The establishment of the index enabled me on occasion to assume the position of employer of the pen of some of these gentlemen. Thus at least half the articles in the index are written by Englishmen, who only a few months ago had but imperfect knowledge of and little sympathy, active sympathy with the South. It is my object and hope by this means to found a school of writers whose services and the moral battles we still have to fight will from their position be more valuable to those than of the ablest pens of our own country. Hotz, amazingly, soon had correspondents writing for the index from the North, from occupied New Orleans. He had correspondents in New York who were sending him clippings from the New York papers and comments summarizing the news. He had them in Washington, he had them in Philadelphia. And as I said, he even got them from occupied New Orleans. Communications, of course, were slow due to the blockade between Richmond and, and London, at least for the Confederacy there were, and they were uncertain. But months later, when Hotz first got word of uh, the reaction in Richmond to his project, Hotz was tremendously gratified at Secretary Benjamin's approval of both his wake and of the index. Benjamin wrote him, your dispatches continue to afford interesting and gratifying proof of the intelligent zeal to, with which you are performing your duties. I have had occasion to examine the index more particularly since I last wrote and observe a progressive and marked improvement in its contents. Hotz, uh, Benjamin said that he thought Hotz's plan of engaging British writers and at the same time, quote, educating them in Southern affairs to be judicious and effective. Although the index commented on many topics, defended the South, criticized the North, charted, chided Lord, Rabbit's, uh, Lord Russell's masterful inactivity, uh, exulted in Confederate victories and minimized Confederate defeats, uh, 
frequently preparing in advance cushions for these defeats, I may say. Now, there was one central, all-pervading theme uh, in Hartz's writings and in the index's tone. This was the do-all and the be-all of Henry Hartz's mission to England, and he never for a moment forgot it. This was recognition of the Confederacy. A few random quotes from the index will demonstrate this. On May 22, 1862, the index pointed out that recognition did not mean intervention. On June 19, 1862, it declared that recognition of our recognition, recognition of one nation by another is the mere acknowledgement of an existing fact. The recognition of the Confederate States as an independent nation, nothing less, nothing more, is what the present situation in American affairs requires, he wrote on July 17th. As the war went on, Hartz never dropped the subject. On March 19, 1863, the index declared that the Confederacy, quote, was recognized on the stock exchange, recognized by common parlance and by public opinion the world over, and is unknown and unrecognized only by the diplomatic ceremonial. And on June the 2nd, 1864, the index declared, while we refuse to recognize the existence of any government in that country, the Confederacy, everything wears the air of complete organization and accomplished national independence. As late as January the 26th, 1865, with all signs pointing now to Appomattox, the index gave another variation on this well-known theme. The true obstacle to recognition by England is not slavery, because, he says, in the height of the abolitionist agitation, she readily recognized Texas. But rather it is the apathy or the lack of initial power by her present government. Now, Hotz, as one might expect on the pittance that he had, had financial problems. The index cost him 40 pounds or roughly $200 a week to produce. His revenue from advertisements and from subscriptions, which never exceeded 2,500, was about 20 pounds a week. That made a loss of 20 pounds a week. Uh, a week. Now, he tapped that $750 contingent fund as best he could. He begged money and got it from some of the friends and from the Southern lobby and from the, the uh, English sympathizers. He begged it from Benjamin. He begged it from Mason and Slidell and he begged it from Edwin de Leon. De Leon, you know, was the had been the United States Consul General in Egypt. He was a friend of Jefferson Davis, and he'd been sent to France with a slush fund of $25,000, uh, presumably to captivate the French press. De Leon had stopped in London on his way across. He had met Hawks. He found him a very able man and thought that Confederate propaganda in England was in good hands. But he, completely unaware of what Hartz's purpose was, took a very dim view of the index because Hartz had written him for help for money and in reply he shows how he didn't even grasp the vaguest, have the vaguest idea of what Hartz was trying to do. Here's what he said. With regard to the index, I will speak to you with the frankness of a friend. I do not think it can be sustained. Uh, the tax of 40 pounds per week uh, being too heavy uh, to be long continued and temporary aid will do no good. 
Moreover, in the Herald and Standard, you have daily organs of wide circulation representing political English parties, while the correspondence of the Times, Post, and Telegraph throw a flood of light on our affairs. With a weekly paper and the limited circulation you can get, you cannot hope to rival your native competition. I therefore do not feel at liberty to divert the funds under my control for the direction as suggested in your letter. I said that De Leon missed the entire purpose. This man wasn't trying to compete with any, he wasn't trying to reach the vast English public. He wanted to be reach the, that part of the British public which was opinion farming. The writers, the journalists, the editors, the politicians, the statesmen, the cabinet people. And through them, this was how he was working. And De Leon sees him in competition with the great metropolitan London papers. Well, he turned him down. But Hawks appealed to Mason and Slidell, who urged De, De Leon to send Hawks 250 pounds, quote, for the support of the index during the next two or three months. Well, De, De Leon's views on the index weren't the only criticism that Hawks received. Uh, early in the paper's existence, uh, John Slidell was rather impatient with the index because it didn't attack the British cabinet and repeatedly urged Hotz to do so. And of course, Hotz's tone of what he calls studied moderation uh, didn't permit of this. He was an English, this was an English paper. This was ostensibly an English paper operating as an English paper operates. And for him to lose his temper would have been very intemperate from the point of view of his mission. And uh, he himself knew that this moderation which he'd imposed upon himself would be misunderstood and mistaken by many uh, Southerners in Europe for lukewarmness, timidity, or lack of spirit. Clement Clay, who was influential in Confederate affairs as late as 1864, complained that the index's stand was wishy-washy on many uh, points concerning the Confederacy. But once again, Hotz's self-imposed Olympian serenity had been misunderstood by these other people in Europe. He had designed the index, as he said, to be in appearance and contents acceptable to English ideas. And it was essentially, told Benjamin, to avoid the great era of American journalism, that of mistaking forcible words for forcible ideas. It was necessary, went on this young man, to draw a marked contrast between the index and the popular idea of an American newspaper. That Richmond approved of this, took a little time to show it, but that he approved it was quite evidence from Benjamin's letter to Hotz on September the 19th, 1863. Noting the regular arrival of the index, Benjamin expressed satisfaction, quote, the tact and at the tact and vigor with which Hotz and his staff maintained Southern rights in its columns. The paper being to a certain extent an English journal, although devoted to our, devoted to our defenses, he wrote, the moderate and temperate tone in which it is conducted is not only necessary, but eminently judicious. While everything he did or wrote, as I said, was ultimately aimed at securing recognition from England for the Confederacy, Hotz did not hammer exclusively on this idea uh, and discard others. A brief chronological survey of the index shows his treatment of continuing subjects and topical news uh, impinging upon the Confederacy. As this ostensible English journal, the index frequently discussed the inefficiency of the blockade or the repeated federal insults to the British flag. Frequently it touched on the cotton famine, deploring the great distress in Lancashire by the closing of the cotton mills. And it interpreted the war news from both the North and the South, never distorting a fact, 
but presenting a fact of the facts in a light which was favorable to the Confederate cause. For example, after the Seven Days Battle, the index spoke of the collapse of the federal armies. After Antietam, it scoffed at Union claims of victory. Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation, Hart said, was a sop to Europe. And he pointed out cleverly that Mr. Lincoln, quote, does not promise to liberate the slaves in those states which are still occupied by federal troops and subject to federal rule, but only to emancipate those who are beyond his reach. When William, e. Glad William Gladstone made his famous Newcastle speech in mid-October, you know the speech, Jefferson Davis has made an army, and the other leaders have made an army, and they've made a navy, and they're about to make a nation, that thing. He warned in the index, and very shrewdly warned, that although Mr. Gladstone's language is significant, rather is indicating what the great majority of capable and impartial public men in England think than as affording a clue as to what the English ministry intends to do. Lincoln's dismissal of General McClellan was politically inspired as a defiance of the Democrats. The index scored the British Foreign Office for turning down two proposals by France to mediate the war. When in March of 18, uh, 23, 1863, Lord Camel made a brilliant plea in the House of Lords for recognition of the South, Hotz declared that all enlisted from Lord Russell was a reiteration of his policy of procrastination. Stonewall Jackson's death at Chancellorsville was a sad loss, but not an irre irreparable one, said the index. The great cause will go on and prosper, though Lee and a hundred others of the dead hero's comrades share his fate. The twin Confederate defeats at Gettysburg and Vicksburg early in July 1863 found the index, quote, not disposed to underrate the importance of the reverse that has befallen the South. But three months later, the Southern victory at Chickamauga caused the paper to enthuse. The South has again proved that with anything like equal terms, it is far more than a match for the invader, and that the wake of subjugation is more hopeless than ever. The index rationalized Braxton Bragg's defeat at Missionary Ridge and his retreat into Georgia by saying that Bragg has sustained a serious reverse we fear cannot be doubted, that his army is flying, scattered, and in hopeless panic we utterly disbelieve. General U.S. Grant's appointment as Commander-in-Chief said the index, quote, was another of those clever dodges of honest Abe Lincoln by which a dangerous rival is to be got out of the way. Mr. Lincoln's administration has to carry on two wars in 1864, Hart said. It has to subdue the South in order to carry the presidential election, and it must win the presidential vote in order to beat the South. And the index accurately assessed Banks' Red River fiasco in Louisiana when he said that the Confederate victory under Richard Taylor, quote, had scarcely received the attention that it deserves in England. On June 23, 1864, the index printed Admiral Raphael Sims' report of the Alabama's fight with the Kearsarge, and it commented, the Kearsarge possessed every single advantage in this unequal fight, speed, strength, numbers, and weight of metal. The Federals have gained no glory by their success. The Confederate flag has sustained no dishonor. Mr. Lincoln's re-election in November 1864 was characterized by the index, quote, as little else than an abdication by the American people of the right of self-government as an avowed step towards the foundation of a military despotism. Hotz had other propaganda devices besides the index. 
Uh, James Spence's pro-Southern The American Union, which had run four editions in England, he had cheap editions printed in both French and German for distribution on the continent. He reprinted Frank Key Howard's 14 Months in American Bastilles, uh, which shows that the propaganda of the atrocity story uh, was not unknown in the time of the Civil War. He uh, published one of his greatest coups was the publication of over 200,000 pamphlets in the press or the periodical press of England. Uh, in uh, Richmond in 1863, an address to Christians throughout the world was published by a group of ministers who met in the convocation in Richmond. And he had run this in the index as much of the text as he had, the whole text, I guess. And then it, one of the publishing houses, the Nisbet House, a Presbyterian house, came to him and suggested, why not print this in pamphlet form? We will stitch it into all our religious publications and into the Quarterly Review and the Edinburgh Review. And so at a cost of $1,500, Hart sent this message, 200,000 copies went in pamphlet form throughout the English-speaking world. He wrote other pamphlets himself, some of them in French, on the Mexican question, and hoping to get French support for the Confederacy. Support. Meantime, Edmund de Leon was in the Confederate doghouse and was virtually kicked out of it after getting in it. This man had had the effrontery to open letters that, slide, that uh, the Secretary of State Benjamin had sent to Slidell. On the ship, he just broke the seals and read Slidell's letters. When Slidell got him, he was furious. He didn't say anything to Benjamin about it, but he let uh, De Leon know very well because he didn't, he just cut De Leon both politically and socially and did nothing to advance him in, in France. But that, of course, got De Leon a little mad, and De Leon wrote letters back to Benjamin criticizing Slidell and Mason, and these letters were captured by the Federals and printed in one of the New York papers. Well, of course, this rendered Mr. De Leon useless. And so who should be assigned to handle Confederate propaganda in France but Henry Hotz? And Hotz was pleased when he went over to France with the great reception he got from Slidell and George Eustace, who was Slidell's secretary, both of whom uh, demonstrated said Hotz most energetic and efficient support. Well, they fell in love with this youngster as against this other chap, and uh, in 10 days, Hotz surveyed the Paris press and he saw to what extent de Leon had used monetary persuasion, as he called it, to make the French journals very accessible and amenable to reason. And he went on to explain that if he had used the same tactics in England as his predecessor, and I don't want to be critical of, of Mr. de Leon, but if I had used the same methods in England, I would not have made acquaintance with or had contact with uh, an entree to the type of newspapers which I have been able to do. Uh, he said, uh, as he told Benjamin, he would have to exercise caution with the French press because black friendships suddenly have a tendency to convert themselves into formidable, hostile uh, disappointments. His greatest coup in France, and I'd say outside of his, uh, the issuing of the, of the index, his greatest coup in France concerned his meeting casually, but his ability to sell a bill of goods quickly and to win confidence of people. When he met Monsieur Auguste Havas of the great Havas Boulier, a telegraphic and, and correspondence agency, the great French AP, if you will. 
This supplies news to all the French newspapers. Well, Hartz with this amazing gift, which he had to a great degree, amazing gift for making friends of important people and winning their confidence, he quickly gained this Frenchman's ear and uh, have us uh, uh, soon receiving Confederate news from Hartz. And as he said, this secures a hearing in journals of every sh shade of opinion, even those fiercely opposed to us. And he goes on to say in his letter to the Home Office, Mr. Havas professes no partiality for our cause. His business, he reasons, is to supply a reliable, interesting intelligence impartially to express no opinion of his own. For this intelligence, he goes to the best sources and the source he trusts according to his experience of their reliability. On my part, my object is to obtain in the Parisian press what we have never had before, a space proportionate to our importance. And so it happens, he said, I think to the credit of both of us that Mr. Havis never has refused a single thing I have written, I have sent, and I pay only the cost of transmitting them. Uh, the uh, effectiveness of Henry Hotz's is wake uh, in France uh, parallels very closely his success with the index in as far as telling the Confederate story. But he himself uh, was very much concerned uh, with the fact that he wasn't really getting what he was out to get, the recognition of Europe, especially England and France, for the Confederate cause. Uh, when rumors reached Europe in 1863, <coughs> rumors came, coming from the North that the South was going to arm 500,000 slaves, when this reached England, Hotz decided to write an editorial about it. And here's what he wrote in the index on September the 10th, 1863. We have in the various rumors that preceded this last direct announcement so many indications that the question of arming the slave population has been under careful and serious consideration in the Confederate councils. It is also certain that the same subject has been frequently discussed by the Confederates and their friends in Europe within the last few months. The Southern mind, therefore, on both sides of the ocean has been ripening for this step, and if not already taken, is prepared to take it. Intelligence, intelligent observers of the struggle have long been aware that as a last resort, the South possessed an element of latent strength <coughs> which, whenever called forth, would at once shift the numerical superiority to the side which had hitherto been the weaker, and thus end the conflict. Those who know the temper of the Southern people knew that if the alternatives were fairly presented between independence and the maintenance of Negro slavery, it would not hesitate an instance to sacrifice the latter to the former. In reporting this rumor, the, uh, of which he just wrote, a couple of weeks later he writes to Benjamin, and I think this is one of the most illuminating statements. It, 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 to me, if this thing could be translated today, among the people who are in great opposition to the problems that we have today. I think that many of them are honest and sincere people, many of them are, are fighting a non-existing boogaboo except a myth in their minds. But I'm not, I don't want to be editorializing myself, but Hotz's statement here, I think, has a great significance for us today. A short time since, he wrote Benjamin, a short time since the whole of Europe was startled by the announcement made in the most positive terms through northern sources that the South had received 
had decided upon arming immediately 500,000 of its slaves. He said to Benjamin that the Southerners abroad neither credited nor discredited the rumor for the topic had been discussed among some of them in recent weeks and its possibility was admitted. But here he says is what startled him was the equanimity with which he and fellow Southerners accepted this proposed social change. And I quote, I have been surprised, writes Hartz, both at myself and others, how composedly an idea was received which two years or even one year ago would not have entered into any sane man's minds. If the measure were really, measure were really required and no one presumed that otherwise the president would propose it and the alternatives were once forced upon us of choosing between independence and the maintenance of our domestic institution, I feel that I represent the views of the most loyal and most enthusiastic of its admirers, meaning the institution, when I say that we are not prepared to pay even this fearful price. Uh, time was, of course, running out for the Confederacy. You know, Duncan, Duncan Kenner was sent abroad with the proposition too late. South themselves had turned down, uh, the president had deemed uh, the proposal of, of General Pat Claiborne made in January the 1st, 2nd, 1864, proposal that the slaves be armed. They had deemed it premature and dangerous and please suppress the document. And yet a year later, the Confederacy went about the procedure of making it legal for slaves to fight. But by this time, the war was virtually over. Uh, uh, but, but even again, he returns to this theme even before Kenner got to Europe, because on November the 10th, 1864, the index declared, there is now no doubt that the people of the South have fully made up their minds in the event of the war being continued beyond the present unfinished campaign to throw into the scales the enormous latent strength so long held in reserve. And two months later, on January the 19th, 1865, the index wrote, said, the Confederate press is inflicting cruel tortures upon the Northern War Christians by talking of emancipating the Negroes. Emancipation, in the opinion of New England, is a most holy work when employed as a war measure for the purpose of exterminating the Southern people. But it is wicked and most damnable proceeding when suggested as a means of aiding the Confederates to defend their liberty, their lives, and their country. But as I said, the hourglass was short of signs. Appomattox was just around the corner. And still, despite this, the index and hearts kept up a brave front. On February 27, 1865, he said that the war was nearing the end, but we await the result with confidence. The loss of Charleston, he said, was a grave misfortune. But there was now one less city for the Confederate Army to defend and one fortified position the more for the federal troops to hold. In the index predicted on March 16th that if Lee retires to the mountains, quote, the war may be carried on for 20 years. At the end of March, the index warned that the Federals revised and prepare all the war news that reaches Europe. On April the 6th, three days before Appomattox, the index confidently expected Robert E. Lee to break the, quote, the net which is said to be closing around him and once more and finally destroy the northern illusion of reunion. Two weeks later, when the reports of the fall of Richmond reached England, the index made no attempt to underrate the gravity of the blow. But it urged its readers to wait patiently and with dis without despondency the arrival of Southern news that may place the evacuation of Richmond and Lee's retreat in a different light. When the news of Appomattox arrived, 
Potts doubtlessly felt, as did his friend James D. Bullock, the Confederate naval agent abroad, who wrote Hotz as follows. The Confederacy cannot recover the shock of Lee's surrender. So long as the president holds out, I will. But I fancy he will in time be forced to acknowledge the inevitable result. I hope you will be able to keep the index going. Well, Hotz hoped he could too. But four months later, in August the 12th, 1865, he, he and the index bade farewell to their readers. And I think this is a very poignant couple of paragraphs. I'd like to read them from the index's final issue. This is the last issue of the index. The blockade of the South rendered it necessary for the representatives of the Confederate government to have some avowed channel of publication. Naturally, this position developed upon this journal. Under such circumstances, though we regretted it, we have had no right to complain that in Europe we were looked upon as the mere organ of the Confederate government and that we would describe the United States as the rebel organ. It did not and indeed does not occur to us that the downfall of the Confederacy deprived us of a field of usefulness. Unfortunately, we find our usefulness marred by the general impression that this journal has been nothing more than a Confederate organ. We might have battled against this impression and removed it, but circumstances have come to our knowledge which forbid this attempt. It is impossible not to see that the public on both sides of the Atlantic regards the index as a kind of protest against the decision of Providence and as the organ of a new secession party. It is needless for us to declare that such assumptions are entirely false, but we are unable to add that they are manifestly unreasonable. To suppose that the continued publication of the index has a political significance and that it must needs be hostile to the United States is natural and almost inevitable. We have then no choice. We have sought to do the South good and we cannot harm her to further our own views. We therefore suspend publication. The index shall not be the excuse, the plausible excuse for perpetuating a contest which can only aggravate the miseries of the conquered and the disarmed. We are strongly tempted to address a few last words to our Southern readers. The long agony of the South will not be without a reward. Though defeated, the South is not dishonored. The history of our independent existence does not exceed four years, but it is a complete and brilliant record that will endure so long as virtue and heroism are venerated. The Southern Confederacy has fallen, but our gallant sons have not died in vain. Whatever flag waves over our capitals, the South will be free. Time will obliterate the ravages of the fierce conflict, and the South, chastened by the will of God and exalted by a chastening, will yet be happy and prosperous as in bygone days. It is with a good heart, though with, with personal pain, we bid farewell to our Southern friends. And thus died in its 172nd issue, the Index. It had been a remarkable exper experiment uh, undertaken by a very remarkable young man. Hotz lived 22 years after the war, but only the barest fragments of his life thereafter have survived. He died without issue at 53 in Zug, Switzerland on April the 19th, 1887. I'd like to conclude, if I may, by quoting the last two paragraphs from our little sketch on Hotz, which I think sums him up. Henry Hotz's total effort, remarkable itself, is all the more to be marveled at when one considers the maturity and experience of most of the Southern officials with whom he associated in his three years as Confederate propagandist. Before Hotz was born, Benjamin was a prosperous lawyer, and Slidell was a power in Louisiana and national politics. 
William Lowndes Yancey, approaching his majority, was tentatively trying out his forensic wings. And James M. Mason, at 36, was on the threshold of a notable career in the United States Senate and House. Thrown into contact with these older and more experienced men, with only two or three years of journalistic training behind him, Henry Hotz was never outshone on his mission to Europe. His perception, penetrating judgment, infinite patience, and soft approach made him a special kind of diplomat, a prototype of Americans who would move noiselessly behind the scenes in other times, in other crises. Indeed, the effective, indeed, the effectively quiet techniques of Henry Hotz would have done credit to a Colonel House or a Harry Hopkins. Thank you all.